0: reading from John chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. And there was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Thank you. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to uh, fellowship together and to worship uh, through the Music and the Lord's table and the prayers and and the ministry and preaching of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless every avenue of our worship this morning. May it be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all this morning and uh, glad that you're here. The opportunity to come each week is the highlight I know of my week and of many that I speak to each Sunday uh, say this is the time that that we look forward to every week. Coming together, fellowshipping together, encouraging one another, and minister having the ministry of the word uh, to our hearts and souls. We've been in this passage now for a few weeks and we see the Lord Jesus says, The good shepherd who dies for the benefit of his sheep through an eternal salvation that ultimately brings him glory. This is what this is what salvation is all about. We're the beneficiaries of it, but it is not for us alone. It is for us to give glory to the one who made it possible, who actually brought it to pass. He dies for the benefit of His sheep. He knows His sheep with an intimate and everlasting love and He keeps His sheep. He knows them and He knows that they will produce good which will also bring about glory for Him in the end. He's promised us that in Romans chapter 8. All things work together for good to those who are the called According to who? His purpose. And so He gets glory in the end. Third, He is the Good Shepherd who unites His sheep into one fold, having called people from every every tribe and every tongue and every language on the face of the earth, every nation. And that is how real reconciliation is of differing people groups happens. Oh, there can be a sense of reconciliation between people groups, and that's why nations have peace talks and sign accords and all these things, but real reconciliation comes through the blood of Jesus Christ that is shed abroad in our hearts. Therefore, we can have fellowship and real unity together with people of varying countries and varying languages because of Christ Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus presented himself as the only true shepherd, proclaiming that all who came before him were indeed apostles or or imposters. He alone cared for the sheep. He alone knew and loved the sheep. And He alone was the only one willing and able to lay down his, his body and soul in the place of the sheep for their redemption. Only He was able to make one fold out of all the nations of mankind. And of this diversity of race and nationality and even denominations, there is a real opportunity for peace. Think about it. Why is there so much fighting among denominations of churches around the world, particularly, uh, particularly uh, in the United States? Well, I can tell you, one of the reasons why is because many of the churches of our day are filled with goats. Who have to be entertained in order to stay. Real unity among believers comes because of Christ. Two people redeemed. Coming together and fellowshipping in the one shepherd who makes it all possible. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, We are all equally sinners. We are all equally helpless. We have all come to one and the same Savior. We have the same salvation. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Father. We even have the same trials. And finally, we are all marching and going together to the same eternal home. We may not agree on every jot and tittle of... Life or or even Scripture. But we do believe in the same Lord. And that brings us to verse 17. When Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. The eternal Son, having been made flesh now reveals His attitude toward all that the Heavenly Father had planned for Him. What was the attitude of Jesus toward the Father, knowing that the Father had sent Him to be so abused and so ridiculed and finally murdered? The attitude is displayed in verse 17 and 18. If you notice in verse 18, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This I received from my Father. That's his attitude. They are the same attitudes... That his sheep demonstrate toward him, yet with not, without the same perfection that he demonstrated to the Father. The sheep know their shepherd, and they follow him with a desire to emulate and imitate him and his life, just as he did with his Father in relationship. Jesus said... I always do those things which please the Father. So he was in contact with the Father. The Father was directing his life. And he was always doing what the Father directed. There is The the attitudes here are those of love and obedience. This was the attitude that he displayed through his whole life. He loved the Father. And the Father loved him. And because of that love, Jesus was absolutely obedient to everything that the Father gave Him to do and to to accomplish in His earthly life. There is no relationship with God that disposes of one or the other of these two attitudes. It is impossible to love God and not obey Him or at least have the desire to obey him. This is this is said over and over in the gospel in this gospel, John 14:15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. <coughs> Verse 23 of that same chapter, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. <coughs> John 15, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide or live in my love. How do you do that? By, obe- by obeying. John writes this in 1 John 2, verses 3 to 5. And this we know, and th- by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. What does that mean? <clears throat> To keep the commandments is to conform our actions and our practices to Him. It means to observe what He has told us with persistence. It's not a one-time deed. It is a lifetime fulfillment. And then he, He goes on to say, Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments does not persist in His Word, does not care whether they obey Him or not, is a liar. And the love of the truth is not in Him. The love of God is not in Him. He writes in chapter 5, verse 3 of his first epistle, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome i tell you what's burdensome is when we fail to keep them. When we know we have sinned by not being obedient. That's what's burdensome. That's what weighs heavy on our souls and our hearts. If someone says they love God, then there will be a life that is endeavoring to be obedient to what Jesus has commanded. Jesus said that the Father loves the Son because the Son lays down His life for the sheep. That obedience was to die on the cross. Jesus knew this. He knew what was coming. Paul writes of Him in Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself, becoming what? Obedient. To the point of death, even death on a cross. But there is another added clause in in uh, in the verse where it says uh, that I'm in verse seventeen that I might take it up again. He knew he was going to die. He knew what kind of death he was going to die. He knew what was coming with regard to that death. And he knew that bearing sin would cause a separation from the Father that he had never experienced in all of eternity. And so the, the only thing that he could look past all of that to was the fact that he would rise from the dead. And he would be restored This was the purpose which the, for which the Father loved the Son. Prior to creation, the Father and the, the, uh, loved the Son, and, and the Son and the Father agreed that the Son would die for the sheep that the Father had selected to give to the Son. That love between the Son and the Father is the basis for our salvation Eternally. In other words, if Jesus ever stopped loving the Father, or the Father ever stopped loving Jesus, we would all be lost. But you see, that can't happen. Because the Father loved the Son eternally. Past and future. And the Son loves the Father the same way. It is in that love that we are secure. Because He has loved us, the Father has loved us through His Son the very same way. And has given His Son as the all-satisfying aroma and view of His justice being brought to bear. It is an unqualified and eternal love based upon the obedience of the Son. The Father did not wait until Jesus had fulfilled His death on the cross to start loving Him. No, the love was eternally there before He ever came or before the world was ever created. And the whole plan was made in that that way. He loved Him in eternity past having planned all of time and eternity future on the Son's obedience and love for the Father. That obedience brought the shame of the cross, it brought isolation, it brought rejection of death, and it brought the curse of sin that had been reserved only for the Son. And so as Jesus was looking forward, At what was presently coming at hand, and it's coming very soon now, as we enter into chapter 11 and we see the illustration of Lazarus, and we go into chapter 12 where he is with the Jews once again, and they're plotting to kill him. We get into chapter 13 all the way through. Chapter 17 is one day. So it's coming quickly now. He knows it's right at at hand. But He's looking past that. He knows what death will bring. But He looks past that to the resurrection where there is only victory and only glory. That's why He prays in John 17. About the glory that He had with the Father and and how the Father was going to restore that glory. And so He died in order that He would rise because in rising there would be glory. So, what did that glory bring? It brought about His ascension. It brought about His coming, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It brought about, and it will one day bring about, that glorious day when He returns, and there will be nothing else but glory after that. It'll all be His, it won't be ours. talking last week with Brother Craig after the service and we were talking about the the glory that will be His and how that whatever reward we get, we will lay at His feet because we are not worthy to keep it. He's the only one that's worthy. That's glory. Imagine the glory of laying your rewards at Jesus' feet. and, And then Expressing that we're not worthy to keep them, He's the only one that, need, that that can have them. Jesus answered them in chapter twelve, verse twenty-three: "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified." Seventeen five, and Father, now glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. His glory played an important role in God's plan of redemption. The love that the Father, the love of the Father for the sheep is seen in his sovereign authority in directing the Son who freely obeyed and and died and freely arose. So then the resurrection in God's plan is as important As the cross, for there is no resurrection if there's no death. Now in verse 18, Jesus shatters any thought that the crucifixion was simply an act of human misadventure. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. But they did take his life from him, did they not? Did they not put him on a cross and murder him? They did. Could he have could he have been rescued from that? He could. But he couldn't. Because not to be rescued would be disobedience to the father. They took his life bodily, but they could not touch the deepness of his soul that he freely gave, that no one could take from him. He gave it up. Everything he had, all that he was, he gave up freely. Why? Because the Father had commanded it and Jesus accordingly obeyed doing his will. See, it's all about love and obedience. Now, what happened after this? Well, verse 19 says there was a division that arose among the Jews because of what he had said. Some of them uh, disputed with one another on two different levels. So after having said all these Sovereign things, and they are sovereign things because Jesus is reflecting or uh, He is is saying to them things that He knows is going to come to pass as the sovereign Son of God. The Jews began to argue among themselves. Some said that that Jesus was demon-possessed. While others are swayed by his power to make the blind see, saying that demons could not do such a thing. This is just another instance where the Jews accused Jesus of being insane. They had done this before because they believed that demon possession could cause insane behavior, and it can. The main thing here in these verses that comes out in these verses is this. That when biblical truth, wherever and whenever biblical truth is presented, there will always be controversy. Always. This happened any time that Jesus taught, for he always taught the truth. He always told the truth about what the situation was with regard to his father and to the gospel. He skirted no issue that might cause a rift or an argument. I remember when I first came here, I preached through the gospel of Mark for about three and a half to four years. And then... Uh, after that, I, I went to the book of Ephesians. I began preaching in Ephesians. We had at that time a, an, elder, an elder council of about uh, four or five uh, men. And one was, uh, some of you will remember, one was uh, very old. And he was, he was looked up to and revered by many in the church at that time. Uh, this elderly gentleman who was an elder came to, came to me. I'd been preaching in Ephesians 1 for several weeks. I think I, I, think I had preached about 25 sermons out of Ephesians 1. And it's, uh, the subject matter of Ephesians 1 is all about God's sovereign election and, and predestination and adoption and all those wonderful doctrines that just thrilled my soul. He came to me after a service one Sunday and said, "Uh, "Pastor, he said, "Uh, I think you—I don't think you should preach this this way out of uh, the Bible." He says it causes a lot of trouble, causes a lot of disruption. And so I asked him. I said, "Well, what in Scripture doesn't cause disruption?" And he wanted me to stop. He wanted me to quit and I said I can't I can't do that sorry to do that would be untruthful to scripture I would be disobedient and so I kept on preaching it 4 years through Ephesians Jesus experienced this. This was the first time that they had accused him of insanity or demon possession. In fact, the phrase, has a demon, is used 13 times in the New Testament. Most often it is spoken by the Pharisees with regard to Jesus. John 7, verse 20, the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? See, they, they thought his speech was insane and therefore he's demon possessed. John 8, 48, Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? John eight fifty two. the Jews said, Now we know that you have a demon because Abraham died as did the prophets and you say if anyone keeps my word he won't see death. Over and over and over again they accuse him of this. Imagine the blasphemy of accusing the Son of God, the Holy Spirit, Righteous Son of God of being demon-possessed. Seems ironic. It seems ironic to me that people can take the sweetest, most precious truths of Scripture in the, most, in the worst possible way. And be upset because of something that God said. There were others who rightly said that his words were not the words of a demon, because a demon would not do deeds that would condemn his own evil actions. And certainly, the healing of this blind man did not fall into that category. Jesus was telling the truth. And at least some of the Jews gave way to the possibility that he was being truthful as they remembered the healing of the blind man. Demons wouldn't do this. Well, a demon would leave him blind, stumbling about, so he could never see. Or worse, the darkness of his unbelief. Satan doesn't lead people to salvation. He he makes it as dark as it can possibly be so that they won't be saved. But the light of the gospel is greater than the darkness of Satan. And God overrides it and saves people anyway. Notice verses 22. Let's take time to read them. I'm only going to talk about a little bit of them this morning. But follow with me in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, let's stop right there, because that's all I'm going to get to this morning. I don't know if I'll get to all of that. I want you to keep in mind that in the historical setting of this chapter, Jesus has traveled all over Israel preaching the repentance through the gospel of the kingdom, confronting false religion and teaching, healing people of diseases and afflictions, performing many signs and wonders that left the people speechless, while at the same time instructing his disciples, confirming that he was indeed the true Messiah for approximately three years. Both his actions and his words proved that he was the Son of God in the flesh. Even with all of this evidence, the Jews tragically rejected him as their Messiah and sought to kill him, tragically only because they would not believe. This was predicted to happen from the Old Testament, the prophets. Psalm 22 verses six through eight. Listen to what he says, "But I am a worm, not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And we know that that, that from Psalm 22 came, it came to pass exactly as it was prophesied. Isaiah 49, 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, that's Jesus, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to, to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and from spitting. All that came to pass just as the prophets had said. Up to this point, there were about 120 disciples scattered through Jerusalem and maybe a few few hundred more throughout Galilee. But when we come to the end of verse 21, about two months have passed and it is now winter and the Feast of Dedication is being observed. Now this feast, this feast was one that commemorated the cleansing of the temple after it was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king of the Seleucid Empire, which was a vast empire at the time, stretched all the way from the, from the western uh, part of Turkey, all the way across into what is now uh, Russia and down into India. It was huge, a vast, came from the empire that Alexander the Great had conquered, the Macedonian Empire. When Alexander died, he divided his empire up into four parts, and the generals that followed him were the rulers and kings of uh, those imp- of those empires. The Seleucid Empire was ruled by Antiochus Epiphanes. In the year 167 B.C., Antiochus raged against Jerusalem because he wanted to turn Jerusalem into a Greek culture and cause Jerusalem, or cause all the Jews, to worship the Greek gods. He, he came against Jerusalem, they would not yield, they fought against him, and so he besieged Jerusalem, killed over 80,000 Jews, of both men, women, and children. He came into Jerusalem and he marched into the temple. And he desecrated the temple by offering the sacrifice of a pig on the altar and and set up a statue of Zeus and demanded that the Jews worship Zeus. You can see Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 8 speaks of this. It also speaks of it in light of how... The Antichrist, the future Antichrist, will come and do virtually the same thing, except this Antichrist will set himself up in the, in the temple as God. And a statue of himself to be worshipped. <clears throat> the Feast of Dedication is now known as Hanukkah. It happens that in the wintertime near the end of the year, it's called sometimes called the Feast of Lights, because in the festival the Jews would come, and they would bring the they would light the menorah in the temple. It would be lit up by the by the burning of the candlesticks, uh, and people throughout Judea would take lamps and candles, and they would burn them in the streets and in their homes. And so all of Jerusalem would be a light, and it was all to commemorate the cleansing of the temple and the taking over of the temple again from the Greeks under Antiochus by the Maccabees. You have that in the Apocrypha, the historical record of the Maccabees who took back the temple. And this this festival was to commemorate the dastardly deeds done by the king, uh, the pagan king, and the successful revolt of the Maccabees, who recovered the temple, tore down the pagan altar and statues, and so lamps and lights would be lit all over Jerusalem to rejoice. It was eight day. It was an eight day festival, very similar to the festival or the feast of booths, which had taken place a few months prior to this. It was during these festivities that Jesus was walking in the temple through Solomon's portico. It was a, it was a, a wide area held up by many columns and a lot of times the teachers would come, that their disciples, and they would teach there in Solomon's portico. Jesus was walking there and the Jews surrounded him. Now, when it says they gathered around him, that means they encircled him or they closed in on him. Now, I want you to think about how this would have felt. Because they had already sought to arrest him. They had already ridiculed him and abused him. They had already said that they wanted to kill him. This is all leading up to the murder of the Son of God on the cross. He could not escape. They surrounded him and they began to badger him and ask questions with malicious intent. They demanded he answer their question, how long will you keep us in suspense? Isn't that kind of a silly thing to say? There's no suspense here. Jesus has already said that he was the Messiah. He's already said that he was the Son of God. He has already said that he came To give His life a ransom for many? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. In other words, tell us the truth this time. Now this was the right thing to ask. The only problem was it should have been asked long before this. The question, it was the question that was asked of Jesus' disciples when Jesus Himself said, Who do men say that I am? Oh, well, some say you're, you're this or that or a prophet or John the Baptist. Uh, well, who do you think I am? And Peter spoke up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, that was the answer that should have been given. The Jews are not asking this question with the intent of knowing the truth. They don't care about the truth. Just like people today don't care about the truth. On the contrary, they are trying, as they have done before, to find a way to accuse Him and put Him to death. Jesus is not intimidated nor threatened by their query. He answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus had only done the works that the Father had given him to do. And the works were of supernatural quality. They were deeds that no mere mortal human being could have done on their own. And they were all good and for the benefit of people. Never once did he ever hurt anyone. They were aware of the supernatural design of his works. Listen to John chapter 11, verse 47, which we'll come to shortly. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered to counsel and said, What are we to do? For this, this man performs many signs. See, they knew. They knew his signs were supernatural. But they were angry about his disruption of the nation. Jesus had said in Luke chapter 12, do you think that I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This happened among the Sanhedrin as well. This dispute. Every time Jesus said something, there was a dispute among the Jews. Some outright rejected it. Others were trying to think it through. But in the end, they all rejected it. They were worried that his message might encourage a revolt against Rome, which would take away their privileged status. We see that in John 11, verse 48. So what they're doing here is trying to get him to say publicly that he is God, the Messiah, so they can be exonerated in their arresting him and putting him to death. That's what they're trying to do. Now, I want, to, I want you to... You remember a while ago I said that people take things that are in the Word and the, the most wonderful, the most glorious things and they, and they make trouble over them. Remember that? This is one of them. Look at verse 26 where he says, Where he says, "But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep." Our, our Armenian friends hate that verse, and they and they many of them try to turn it. Many people who are not persuaded as to the sovereignty of God in salvation misquote the verse. They often. And how I have heard it said, they would say it like this. You are not of my sheep because you do not believe. But that is not what the verse says. Now that's, that sounds good to, to a person who wants to have the control over whether they believe or not. But it's not what the verse says. Notice I want you to pay close attention to it. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. In other words, that was the reason they didn't believe, was because they were not part of his sheep. It wasn't that they weren't his sheep because they didn't believe. It was the other way around. Jesus had already said that he knows who his sheep are and he's looking at them saying you're not my sheep you're goats second timothy turn to second timothy look at verse chapter 2 verse 19 notice what he says verse 19 but god's Firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Now a seal in that day was a very important thing. It was placed upon documents and, and uh, sealed together with, uh, with wax and a imprint. And so what he's saying here is that God has sealed this truth. And here's the truth. The Lord knows those who are His. That's all I want you to see. The Lord knows those who are His. And when Jesus is standing there and He is talking to these Pharisees, He is saying to them, I don't know you. You are not of My sheep. And that's the reason you don't believe. He knows because they were selected before the creation of the world and they were not his sheep. And that was the reason for their unbelief. He supernaturally knew that they were not his own. I don't know how you get around that any other way than what it says. That's why that's why the preaching of the gospel is, is such a wonderful thing. That's why missions is such a wonderful thing because you're going to people who out there who are lost and they're God's sheep and they will hear the gospel and they will be saved. If it weren't for that, a missionary would just be, feel like he's beating the air. I used to think years ago, That I had to preach in such a way that I could make people believe. And if they didn't believe, then I felt like I was responsible for their unbelief. And it was a glorious day when the weight of that burden was taken off of me. When I realized that God knows His sheep. And when He preached the gospel, it goes out. And God's going to be the one that causes people to be saved. And I can walk away, if I preach the truth, I can walk away unburdened, believing that the gospel will do the work. <clears throat> and you can do that too. You witness to somebody and you bring them, give them the gospel, you, you tell them the truth, you can walk away knowing that you did exactly what you should have done. And now the burden of belief is on God working in them, not you. I have fumbled so many times trying to witness to people and, re- and realizing that it's not it wasn't me it's not anything I can say it's just the gospel itself one final thought this morning it is a dangerous thing listen to me carefully <coughs> it is a dangerous thing to allow pre- predisposition or prejudice to to interpret Scripture to fit one's own view. I've had, I've had pastor friends in the past to say to me, if I preached what you preach, I would split my church. Maybe it needs to be split. Maybe there's goats there that just couldn't stand the true gospel We must always allow Scripture to speak for itself because there is, there is truth no matter what our disposition might be. God's Word is true. And it stands alone on what it says. And it backs itself up every single time. Jesus knew the power of His words were the gospel. And he used them to open the hearts of his sheep. Are you one of his sheep this morning? I know many of you, and I know that you are. Many of you are. But I don't know everybody. And I, I can't say, oh yeah, you're you're truly a Christian. Because I can't see your heart. But I do know this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's exactly what He does. And if you'll see Him as the Lord and the Savior and the Redeemer of your soul and trust in Him, He'll save you and He'll make you His own. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the time we've had together to worship. Thank you for the glorious message of the gospel, which tells us of a Savior who came, the Son of God, to seek and to search out His sheep. And He finds them, every one of them, and He brings them into His fold. He is the one shepherd that is able to do this. I pray that you would work in all of our hearts to just simply trust what your word says. Not to try to rearrange it or rethink it, but just to take it for what it says, because it is the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to have you all here today, and thank you for coming and being here. We're still missing a few. This is.